Well, hello there, everybody. Um, this is Dr. Leslie Kernison of Better Health While Aging, and welcome to this COVID and aging adults update. Uh, what to know for spring of 2023, um, and today is February 23rd, 2023. So as you know, since the COVID pandemic started, I have occasionally recorded these uh, updates for the older adults and families who follow Better Health While Aging and like to get information from uh, me. And I last did one in early December, just as we were heading kind of into a bit of a winter wave. Um, so now it's a couple months later, things have changed a bit, and I felt like it was time to share an update, let you know um, how I see the situation right now and what I would recommend if you're an older adult or if you're caring for an aging parent or another older loved one. Um, so specifically in this update, I'm going to um, share an update on the current COVID and also flu situation. Um, um, I'll touch on the latest on the Omicron subvariants. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the public health emergency ending that was announced a few weeks ago at the end of January by the administration. I just want to share a little bit about what that might mean for you, for your family, for us as a society. Uh, I'm going to share a little bit on the bivalent COVID booster that became available last fall. And then I'm going to talk about how to know if you should uh, still be careful if you catch COVID, because yes, there is still COVID going around, what uh, I think you need to know, and especially how to advocate for Paxlovid, which is the best treatment for COVID. And it's especially important for older adults and their families to know about this. Um, so by the end, I hope to have answered some of the questions that I'm still hearing, like, isn't COVID over now? If I didn't get the fall bivalent booster, should I still bother? Can you still get COVID if you've um, already had uh, COVID, especially if you've had Omicron before? What are the symptoms of COVID right now? What should I do if I or my aging parent get COVID? And how concerned should I or should we? Because I think there is a role for thinking about the we. Um, uh, how concerned should we be? Um, so, um, so what's the deal right now with COVID in the United States? Well, you know, in many ways, the news is good. Reported cases have come down quite a lot since the holidays. Um, they're currently averaging 35,000 a day. Now, actual cases are going to be three to 10 times more. And actually, even though, um, right now, if you look at the curve of cases, um, it looks like it's lower than last summer. The national wastewater level is about the same as um, last summer and also as it was last October. And test positivity is about 30%. Um, hospitalizations have come down a lot, but they're not uh, low. So again, you know, to know how much COVID there is, the case counts have become very unreliable because many people are not testing themselves or they test themselves at home and they don't report it. So what's uh, sort of better for getting a sense of it is um, hospitalization levels, although people are now less likely to be hospitalized because often they've had COVID before, um, and that makes it less likely that you'll get hospitalized during future times around. Um, but, you know, wastewater can definitely give us a sense of how much COVID there is in, in the community. Um, and then um, deaths, unfortunately, have not, um, uh, you know, have not come down as much as we would like. They went up uh, during the winter. They're coming back down, but they're not they're not yet low. So they're down from 560 per day in mid-January. And then for the nursing homes, the cases are at about 10,000 a week. So um, as usual, I'm going to briefly show you where I find this information so that you can um, similarly know where to look for in good information um, if you want to do so on your own. 
And so just a second, let me just uh, organize my, my little boxes a little bit. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I still look quite a lot at the New York Times data tracker. I have a subscription. Um, if you don't have one, you can probably find uh, there are other ones um, available online. And so, again, you can see this peak right here. Um, which looks like it's lower than the case peak right here. <clears throat> but if you look at wastewater, and so one option is uh, Biobot um, right here, you can see that here we are last summer and we're at about the same level, uh, or we were at the same level during the winter peak. Now we've come down. So we're at about the level that we were here. So this is better. However, it is not low like here. So right here in, um, you know, kind of March, uh, that's when we had a national low for wastewater. Um, so it's important to realize that when cases get better uh, and COVID rates go down, that's good, but we are still usually settling at a plateau that, you know, one could argue is relatively high, right? Certainly higher than this right here is the summer of 2021. And um, this is, you know, the fall of, of 2020. So it's not low, still a fair amount of COVID circulating, COVID virus circulating in the community. If you want to look at the um, test positivity rate for Walgreens, you know, it's currently around the 30% rate. Um, and then the other question is, you know, hospitalizations. So I like this graph, hospital admissions by age, because it breaks out the fact that COVID is still much riskier for some groups of people than others, namely for people who are older, especially once they get into, I mean, the risk starts to go up exponentially after people are in their 50s or so. So it's much riskier for somebody in their 80s generally than in their 70s and for the 70s riskier than in their 60s. So we can see here this dark blue purple line is people over um, age 70. And we can see that it came down. So right here, the peak right here for hospitalization seems to have been in early January. So it's come down nicely. But we are still at um, about 10 daily admissions per 100,000 people, whereas right here, when we were at the lull that I was saying in kind of March, April, we were at five. Um, or right here, this is the lull kind of in the summer of 2021, also close to five, 4.7 um, uh, right there. So still, you know, a not insignificant number of people getting um, hospitalized from COVID. And so when we look at, um, when we look at deaths, um, over here, you can see that, you know, the average right now is still kind of, you know, around 350, um, per day. It does seem to be coming down, but, you know, that's not trivial. That means in 10 days, we have the equivalent of another 9-11 happening. And, um, over 90% of these deaths are happening in people who are over age 65. Now, when you're looking at um, COVID cases, it's always good, you know, to get a sense of what is it like near you. Um, so, um, so again, if, if I were looking at numbers, I would look more at hospitalizations right now than at cases, especially when it comes to older adults. Um, so we can see that the hospitalization numbers are coming down, you know, in most states. And so again, your state should have a dashboard where hopefully there is this information available to you so you can find out what are the hospitalization numbers um, in your area. And it's often possible to find wastewater in your area, 
either through BioBot or um, actually the county of San Francisco when I am is not on BioBot, even though some other California counties are. Um, you know, if I Google and go through the Department of Public Health, I find the wastewater um, data for my immediate area and I can take a look at that. It is usually delayed by a few weeks. Um, so it's possible that the numbers are even better now. But, you know, regardless, I would say it's better. It's just not gone. And then, of course, because I'm a geriatrician, um, I uh, look at, you know, nursing home um, data. I consider that important, too. And um, so we can see here that the nursing homes had a spike and it's uh, it's come down. So the sometimes I find it easier to look at it on the table to see the numbers. So we can see that we're at about, um, uh, I think this data was added since, hold on. Uh, yeah, I think it was updated since I prepared my slide yesterday, but yeah. So now it's 7,000 uh, cases um, last week. Um, so uh, that's good. Um, and, you know, coming down from about 10. So, you know, much better than here. That's definitely good. And then the deaths are, um, oh, sorry, this is actually the rate among staff. I'm looking at the wrong thing. Here we go. I was going to say, I really thought it was higher. Here it is. Always take a good look. At, yes. So there we go. Yeah. So the rate close to 10,000 um, right here. And I mean, it's good to see what the numbers are in nursing home staff too, because um, probably most nursing home residents are going to be catching it either uh, from staff or possibly from family visitors. So we're at about 200 deaths. Okay, so what about flu? Um, so the flu was interesting. We had a very intense flu season that started very early, but it actually peaked in early December and has come down quite a lot. And so if we scroll down, this is the CDC's flu view. Um, here they compare the visits for respiratory illnesses in different years. And this is our year here. And so what we can see is that it, it um, I mean, it was a strong year, you know, um, but what was especially notable about it is that it happened um, early. So right now flu activity is, um, is actually low. And here they have flu in long-term care facilities, that's nursing homes, and that has come down nicely as well. Um, so there is a tab, if you ever want to look at it, for um, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. So this is, again, that other virus that, you know, usually is especially prominent in um, babies and small children. But this year um, affected, it always affects some older adults, but this year it seemed to affect quite a number of them. But fortunately, the levels of that have come down quite a lot as well. So what about variants? Where are we at with variants? Okay. Um, so where we're at with variants is that um, the variant XBB 1.5 has taken over and is currently at over 80%, um, represents over 80% of the viruses that are sequenced. So this is a subvariant of Omicron. Somebody was telling me it's not. That's not true. Um, it's uh, The X means that it's recombinant. So in somebody who had two strains of Omicron, they kind of combined 
and made a new sort of mutanti version. It's a combination of BA 2.10.1 and BA 2.75. So, you know, the main thing to know about it is that it's not a descendant of BA um, 5, which was the new strain included in the vaccine, but it doesn't seem to matter too much because the vaccine does seem to have provided um, uh, reasonable protection against um, other subvariants of uh, Omicron. Now, XBB 1.5 has been studied in the lab and it's very immune evasive. It has mutations that mean that the antibodies that are generated by previously having had COVID or um, by being vaccinated by COVID, those antibodies don't stick very well to it. So it can pretty easily still cause an infection. However, the effect of the vaccine is still good at preventing the severe um, infection. Um, so, um, so what's really nice is that even though XBB 1.5 has taken over as it went up in prevalence, we didn't see an increase in hospitalizations um, due to that. So that's been a really good sign. On the other hand, because it's so immune evasive, it is resistant to all the monoclonal antibody treatments and also to Evusheld, which was the long the long lasting, like six month lasting antibody treatment that was um, designed for prevention for people who are immune compromised or don't respond to the vaccine. Um, uh, Evusheld does not protect against XBB 1.5. So again, if you yourself ever want to go and take a look and see, um, you know, the variant proportions, the CDC has a variant proportion tracker. Um, and I always post the links to these things that I show you in um, the related notes for these update episodes. Um, so the CDC has changed this a little bit. They, they now separate out, whoops, my computer has decided to reload the page. They now separate out the most recent weeks because these are model-based, um, whereas these um, older weeks back here are based on like the actual numbers that they counted. Um, so uh, in public health, there often is a certain amount of forecasting or smart guesstimating that's made. And so now they've been a little bit more explicit that, you know, the recent weeks are guesstimates of the proportion and the earlier weeks are more based on like when they counted, you know, what did they find? Um, so we see it going up. The other one here in green is BQ 1.1, which now has, has gotten a lot smaller. So really, I would say with the variants, um, in a way, it's it's good news. There's no, I have not heard about any new worrisome variant uh, out on the horizon. That's not to say that won't, one won't eventually arrive. Um, but, you know, for now, I think we're in a pretty good place. Um, so let me now uh, go back to my slides and um, talk about the public health emergency ending. So... Um, you may have heard that at the very end of January, the Biden administration announced their intent, the intent to end the public health emergency declaration on May 11th. Now, it's possible that for many people there was a shrug because a lot of people feel like, what emergency? COVID has now been here for three years. Get over it already. Let's move on. You know, for most people, they're over it. So does this matter? Um, and it's true that for a large section of the public, um, they have gone back to living their lives the way they did pre-COVID. Um, and they're not very concerned about it. 
That said, um, even for those people, the public health emergency ending is going to have some implications. And then there's also the psychological factor that for those people who are still very concerned about COVID, um, there may be concerns that if the public health emergency declaration, uh, you know, if the public health emergency is declared over, are we going to stop doing, you know, the things that we're currently still doing? So let's talk about what it means. Um, and, um, and if you're interested in this, a really good way to learn about it, and I'll post a link to it, is that I recently listened to an interview with Dr. Ashish Jha, who is the um, uh, public health doctor who um, became the White House coordinator for the COVID response uh, almost a year ago. So uh, he was interviewed about this, and that, that was interesting to listen to. So one of the things he explained is that... Um, one of the things that happens when there's an emergency declaration, a very important thing, is that it gives a lot of flexibility to um, agencies to modify um, their rules, to, especially to governmental agencies, to modify their rules relatively quickly. Because, especially when it comes to health, but also when it comes to other things, there are usually lots of rules and regulations, and the process for changing them is slow and careful and deliberate. And so when there is an emergency, it, one can create flexibility to change the rules as needed to respond to the emergency. Um, and two, can create sort of access to emergency funds or other things that enable a response. So during the public health emergency, this is part of what enabled, you know, the example he gave was, you know, for hospitals to set up some care in parking lots, because usually it's heavily regulated, the conditions under which hospitals are expected to provide care, and we had to be more flexible about that during a crisis. Uh, the declaration meant that Medicare could change its rules fairly quickly about telehealth, about um, licensing of providers and doctors being able to practice in other states with less, you know, um, bureaucracy uh, required. Um, it created flexibility about, um, it, they also created some rules. It also allows them to create, you know, new rules. It enabled them to require insurers to start, you know, providing eight free COVID tests upon request per month to, um, to people. Um, and it also created, you know, some shielding of liability for, for doing certain things. And there's actually a fairly long list of what, um, it enabled. States also get to have their emergency declarations, which give them flexibility or can free up things. And many of them will tie that to the federal um, health emergency. There have also been in many states uh, requirements because of the health emergency to provide more sick leave, that employers provide more sick leave. Um, so, you know, in lots of ways that public health emergency has created um, the conditions for certain um, benefits uh, to us as individuals or societies, or you could say onerous obligations if you're the employer or the insurer, depends a little bit on your perspective. Um, so when that ends, those things change. Um, now, um, they, this is part of why they announced ahead of time that it will be ending. Uh, and also some of the changes are things that, you know, many people think should stay longer term. So um, in the medical system, there were huge steps forward made with telemedicine and telehealth. Um, and often patients appreciated that or there were other advantages to it. And so some of those things are now in the process of changing the regulations so that those do stay in place, even when the public health emergency um, uh, changes. Um so even if you're among those who think, you know, COVID is over and we should move on with it, it, it does have some implications um, for it to change. Um, so you may be wondering what specifically will change when the public health emergency changes. Um, so 
uh, I would say that, you know, um, and this has already happened for some things, but um, uh, when the health emergency is declared over, probably what we'll see is that, you know, most aspects of COVID management, things related to the costs and access of COVID tests, um, for instance, or of treatments are going to become, you know, healthcare as usual. And the way healthcare as usual works in the United States is that it's left to insurers to negotiate and dictate things. And if it's a private insurer, they are generally doing it on market-based factors. And if it's a public insurer like Medicare or Medicaid, um, then it's partly related to regulatory factors, um, you know, or, you know, money appropriated. Um, so, and then for you as an individual, that turns into, is your service covered? Um, do you have to pay something to access it? Under what conditions do you have to access it? Now, there is something in particular about COVID vaccines, treatments, and to a lesser degree tests. And that's that, you know, previously in the pandemic, the federal government used taxpayer money um, to buy quite a lot of COVID vaccines and treatments. This was part of how they motivated um, the manufacturers um, to create it, is they created a definite buyer and market for the product. Um, for the vaccine, for the bivalent vaccine, for some of the um, uh, antiviral treatments. Um, so they have bought that big supply and they are not, I think they are not currently still buying it in part because the funding for a lot of the COVID, federal COVID response has not been renewed, but they have a big supply of it. So right now they are generally giving it out to people for free. Um, and this is part of why Paxlovid um, should be free uh, if you get it um, and, you know, your vaccines are free. Um, now, when the supply runs out, um, then it will go back to insurers will have to pay and cover it. Or for people who are uninsured, there are usually mechanisms to try to get, you know, the uninsured access to certain kinds of services. So it will fall under that. But it's important to know that um, that is not tied to the day in May when the public health emergency is declared over. That is just a question of when does the federal government run out of the supply, um, the supplies that they purchased. Um, uh, and in his interview, Dr. Jha also pointed out that, you know, when we go back to kind of healthcare as normal, there, there are rules governing what healthcare as normal has to cover, notably the Affordable Care Act, created a lot of those rules um, and some subsequent legislation has created those rules. So the Affordable Care Act requires insurers to cover most preventive care, which includes most vaccinations. So presumably just the way the flu shot is covered by insurance has to be covered by insurance. Presumably COVID vaccines will be covered by insurance um, also. Um, but as far as I know, there's no mandate for insurers to um necessarily cover COVID treatments. I mean, I think they will to a certain extent, but um, but that's kind of what will happen when the public health emergency ends. Um, so um, is this a bad thing for it to end? Um, not necessarily, you know? Uh, I mean, we're three years in and um, it's important to realize that ending the public health emergency doesn't mean that, or it shouldn't mean that we stop taking COVID seriously as a public as a serious public health condition, um, uh, because um, so it, it shouldn't mean that. And the truth is that, you know, the experience that we have as individuals and as a society with COVID is, you know, highly influenced by what the federal government and the state governments choose to fund, right? So are you able to get a COVID test if you think you have COVID? 
that is partly related to funding and partly related to, you know, basically it's partly related to who's in charge of deciding how you access it, you know, are there federal funds to subsidize it or state funds to subsidize it, you know, or regulations saying you have to be able to get it, or has it been sort of tossed into the U.S. healthcare marketplace, which is like, well, if it makes business sense for your insurer to do it, you know, they'll do it. Um, so um, the prior funding made a really big difference. It was used to develop and deploy those vaccines in record time. Um, and it was used to develop and deploy treatments like getting Paxlovid out and available um, widely. So um, more funding is, um, many experts believe that more funding is needed. And I would agree because it would enable the development of better vaccines and treatments. So we're working right now with the vaccine that, you know, was developed in the end of 2020. Um, and vaccine experts believe that it should be possible to create a newer generation of vaccines that works more effectively, even as the virus mutates, or maybe is better at preventing infection and not just preventing severe illness. But for that work to proceed at, you, you know, a faster pace, otherwise it will just very slowly proceed at the pace of academia, which is like fairly slow, um, or research, um, you need funding. Um, and funds could also be used for other ways. You know, it could be used to promote and support improving indoor air quality, um, which would, you know, help prevent um, not just COVID, but, you know, other airborne illnesses and is probably good for people's health in many other ways. Um, unfortunately, to date, Congress has declined to provide the additional funding requested by the administration um, and the additional funding that, you know, is being recommended by many public health uh, experts. So. Um, as the public health emergency ends, um, you know, my feeling is we don't need to continue it indefinitely. And, you know, this may um, is probably a reasonable time to to wind it down. But what we do really need to do, I believe, um, is uh, I, I do feel we need to invest in public health um, because there are a lot of problems that do not get adequately addressed when it's left to the private marketplace. And it's not just COVID. Um you know, so many people ask me, why aren't there more services for older adults who need help to stay in their homes, um, to help families who are caring for declining older adults? Well, you know, partly because we have not done much investing in it as a society, we've left it to the private marketplace. And the private marketplace is having trouble making an effective business <laughs> out of it. So they don't do it. Um, so uh, that's not to say that everything, you know, is best, um, funded by public funds or the government, but there are, you know, I think public health falls into this and also many needs of older adults fall into this, that um, you really do need public investment. Um, so older adults are disproportionately harmed by COVID. So they are the ones, among the ones who stand to benefit the most from public health investment. And I think that'll be an important issue for us as a society to consider this spring and this summer as the emergency declaration ends. And we need to transition to how do we live longer term with the significant ongoing issue that is, you know, COVID, because it's not going away anytime soon. So the bottom line is that COVID rates have improved a lot over the past six weeks, but they are not yet low. And um, hospitalizations among people age 70 plus are twice what they were in April, 2022. So, you know, COVID's not gone. And, um, you know, this has come home for me personally in that just in the last sort of three weeks, uh, I've had three people in my family come down with COVID. My son got COVID for the second time. He's fine. He barely had any symptoms, but I'll talk more <laughs> about, he actually had so few symptoms that I had to have, uh, you know, 
a be motivated to pay attention to 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 notice um but then also in my extended family um you know two older adults got came down with covid for uh for the first time um and i'll talk more about that because um because that relates to paxlovid and one of them was was actually feeling relatively unwell so so yeah so things are better but it's not over um and so i think still you know being mindful and potentially taking some precautions is worthwhile so um doesn't matter who doesn't matter for um i think it depends on who you are and who you are coming into contact with so first of all for you personally how vulnerable and at risk are you yourself for experiencing covid consequences and in a moment i'll talk more about what those consequences are you know generally it's having severe covid so getting hospitalized uh potentially dying you know those are the the most significant ones there are other also some other consequences and then the other question is how often are you coming into contact with other people who are vulnerable so with your aging parent especially if your aging parent is frail enough to be you know, living in a nursing home, or maybe they're just in a residential facility where they're very close to lots of other older people, some of whom might be um, more vulnerable, or if it's your work to come in contact with people who uh, are more vulnerable. Um, I focus a lot on the vulnerable group of older adults, but there are some other groups that are vulnerable, pregnant women. Um, there are younger people who have chronic conditions or who are being treated for cancer or who have had transplants. Um, you know, I mean, there are people out there who are vulnerable. So, um, cause again, you know, 300 people a day are dying of COVID, most of whom are, um, older. So who's more at risk, who's less at risk. So the risk is lower, um, if you are younger, especially under 50, if you are vaccinated um, or have been vaccinated, if you have no or few chronic health conditions, um, it's also lower if you have had COVID, which at this point is like most people, especially most people uh, under 50. So um, if that's, you know, if you fall into that group, the risk at this point when you catch COVID is very low of severe COVID. You know, part of this is because a lot of the people who are susceptible to get severe COVID have already had it. And, you know, we lost a lot of people already. So we're again, like the healthier survivors as a um, society. Now, when people get COVID, um, there is some risk of prolonged symptoms. I mean, not feeling fully well um, for several weeks. That's like not uncommon um, for people to have that. Um, and then, you know, there seems to be probably right now about one to 2% of people who will end up with long COVID, by which I mean, they still have symptoms three months later or longer. And that might still be getting tired easily or getting brain foggy easily, or that could be as significant as those people who have, you know, who are almost disabled from their long COVID symptoms where they get very dizzy when they stand up or they have constant chronic pounding headaches. Um, I'll put this in the links too. There's a, a very moving story recently in the Atlantic Monthly, um, a journalist and professional writer who developed long COVID um, after her very mild case of COVID in June. The first 10 days were mild and then she started having like crazy symptoms. And I think she She's probably in her early 50s, is my guess, and had been vaccinated, um, as far as I know. So um, that's the risk if you are uh, if you are younger. 
Um, and then there's also the kind of unknown risk of whether having had COVID or getting it again increases your risk of, uh, you know, things like diabetes or having a heart attack or stroke, you know, later in your life, or, you know, we still don't know whether it will result in a higher chance of dementia in later life. There are a lot of, you know, things that, that we don't know. Um, so who's at higher risk? Well, the risk goes up with age, especially after about age 50 or so. Like that is, you know, probably the top risk factor. Um, it also goes up a lot with immunosuppression again, whether that's because of your health condition or because of medications that some people take to treat a health condition. And then chronic health conditions are also associated with increased, uh, risk, um, having diabetes, um, having obesity seems to be increased a little bit more. Uh, risk, um, probably having chronic lung conditions. So um, for those people, a recent booster helps a lot. And it's most important for those who are older, especially if they're 65 or older and otherwise high risk. Now, the data does suggest that the booster also reduces the risk of severe COVID in people who are younger. The thing is that they're their risk is already so low that in absolute terms, the risk reduction is very, very small. And so for people who are younger, I think the main benefit of the booster is actually the temporary, um, you know, decrease in your chance of catching COVID and transmitting it. Um, that's probably like more relevant than the personal protective risk. There's also, it's possible that, so vaccination is associated with a lower chance of long COVID. It's not clear whether like additional boosters reduce that significantly beyond the initial effect. Um, so about those COVID reinfections. Um, so there's a, there's a cool study that just came out uh, last week, I think February 16th in the Lancet, like a review of the effect of previously having COVID on protecting you, um, I think from getting COVID again was the, the outcome. Um, yeah, it was from getting COVID and they also looked at being hospitalized. And until Omicron having previously had COVID was like 78% protective against catching COVID again in the following, I think they looked at a time period of, I want to say 40 weeks. Uh, but once Omicron came, um, it was less protective, but it still really does provide a fair amount of protection, especially for the first um, several months. But again, because so many people have a form of immunity towards COVID from previously having had COVID or being vaccinated or both, the newer variants have evolved to get around that. <laughs> and they're not necessarily going to make people very sick, but they they are better at at infecting people. Um, so we do see a lot of reinfections. And so, you know, the question that some people think is, well, if I already have it once, especially if it didn't feel like that big a deal for you, do I really have to worry about getting it again? Um, so there was a large study done um, at the VA. So with veterans who are generally, um, and in that study, it was 90% men. Most VA studies are mostly men. So it was 90% men and the average age was about 60 and they had comorbidities. Um, and that VA study found that every additional COVID infection, because they did have some veterans who'd had a second infection with COVID or even a third, that each one was associated with a higher risk of adverse health outcomes. Um, so, you know, that's worth keeping in mind. Um, now the question is, okay, well, what if you're, what if you're not male? Um, and also what if you're younger and healthier than, um, these vets? 
we really don't know what is the risk of recurrent infection in younger, healthier people. We don't really know what the risk or implications are for children um, who I think can easily get it because they're interacting a lot uh, at school. So if you want to be conservative on the safe side, you know, it would be to still try to avoid um, reinfections. Um, I will say that, and I haven't seen like great data on it, but it seems to me that um, anecdotally for younger people who've already had COVID when they have it a second time, it seems for lots of people, it's um, they get through it more quickly. That would actually make sense with what, you know, we know about the immune system and, you know, catching illnesses again uh, in general. But of course, if in the interim between your first infection and your second infection, something has changed about your health or you've gotten a lot older or sicker or you know, then you could uh, potentially do worse with the second one. Or there might be something about the variant you get the second time around that just interacts with your body in a different way and makes you sicker. So um, so I think there's no guarantee that the um, the second time around will be easier. But so far, it seems like anecdotally, especially for people who are younger, that has been the case. Um, so... So if you are, again, in this higher risk group, so older, immune suppressed, chronic health conditions, and then I forgot to add, you know, pregnancy because it's not really relevant to people age 50 plus. And usually I'm there thinking, especially of people who are 75 plus, um, but pregnancy, you know, would be there too. Um, how can you be more careful? Um, so I think the ideal is to use, you know, what we'd call a multi-pronged strategy. Um, so where you do several things, right? Like, Relying on vaccination and boosters by itself, I, th I think is not enough. So, um, so you would be up to date on your vaccines and have, you know, the latest recommended booster, which I think is especially important if you're over age 65. You would wear masks, <clears throat> um, especially when you're indoors in crowded places because COVID is mostly an airborne disease. So it gets caught when you breathe in like something that someone else has exhaled that was carrying COVID particles. Um, we would, um, you know, um, you can ventilate and filter indoor spaces if you're able to. So if it's your home, you can open windows, you can run an air filter. If you're having people who aren't in your household coming over, you can be careful about unmasked indoor gatherings, especially if other people have cold symptoms. You can be selective about when you're not wearing a mask indoors. So maybe be selective about indoor dining. And if you don't need to be putting things in your mouth, maybe you wear a mask. If you go to the movie theater, you can wear a mask. If you go to a show, um, you can wear a mask. If you are on the airplane, you can wear a mask. Um, you can also do rapid testing for COVID before gatherings of large people. This will miss some, this can easily miss some people with COVID as I'm gonna explain in a moment when I talk about testing and how to know if you have COVID. Um, but it also might detect some people or detect those people who've had kind of a runny nose and thought, oh, it's nothing. And in fact, it was COVID. Um, and then what's really important is that if you do get COVID and you are at high risk, um, it's that you um, get treated, uh, preferably with Paxlovid within the first five days. And I'm going to talk more about that. The alternative, which is also pretty good, is the medication Remdesivir. However, it's an IV medication and you have to give it three days in a row. So it's a lot more hassle um, to get it if you're not in a nursing home. Um, or somewhere where it's easy to get IV medication. Um, okay. Now you're probably thinking, Dr. K, nobody wants to do all that stuff anymore. What's really important? All right. So 
if you want to like focus on what I think is the most useful stuff, it's one staying up to date on the COVID boosters, especially if you are over age 65. And, um, and then, uh, you know, the other is using Paxlovid if you are, if you get COVID. Um, I would still consider masking on planes or other places where you're going to be close to lots of other people for a substantial period of time. So again, your risk of breathing in somebody else's COVID exhalations goes up the longer you're there in a space where other people are exhaling. So, you know, in and out of the grocery store for 10 minutes, not so long, but stuck in the plane for three hours with lots of people, that's more, um, that's more exposure. Now, the plane, once it's at altitude, is going to run its filters, and that's pretty good. So um, for the plane, what's most important is, you know, while boarding on the jetway, while the plane is not uh, in motion. Um, and if you're going to mask, I think if you're going to mask, wear a good mask. I still see people wearing surgical masks, which um, which probably do more if you're sick. They probably do more to capture things and keep you from getting other people sick than they do um, to protect you from what other people are exhaling if you're in an indoor space for any length of time. I still see people wearing cloth masks. Um, you really want to wear, you know, like an N95 or a KN95. Uh, I think I had shown, you know, before the the masks that that I wear. Um, I can show those in in a moment, and I'll list them. Okay. So again, you know, I wear the Polycom. Um, you know, for shorter periods of time, and if it's going to be a longer period of time, or if it's hot. Even though it looks goofy, I wear the, this is the 3MD Flex, really breathable, very nice. Um, if it's warmer, if you're the kind of person who feels like it gets like hot and damp uh, on your face. And then there's also the 3M Aura, which is pretty good. Um, so yeah, I would say the most important is vaccine booster, but also just pick the low hanging fruit for not breathing in what other people are exhaling, unless you know that cases are really low. <laughs> But right now, they're not low. They're just lower than they were in January. Um, so about the booster. Um, now, this came home for me because when I found out that one of my family members a few weeks ago had COVID, uh, it turned out that, um, and he's in his early 70s, it turned out that he had not gotten boosted because he had heard that the booster doesn't work and isn't worth it. So he didn't get boosted until... He heard about somebody else in his social circle who had come down with COVID. So then he thought, oh, maybe I should get it. So he got boosted, but then he came down with COVID four days later, which means that it was too soon for his booster to be in effect. <clears throat> so so why? what is the genesis of this, of his hearing that the booster doesn't work? Um, well, I mean, first of all, there's some misinformation about that, you know, for sure. But I think also there's been a little bit of confusion about how well it works because I myself have told you, well, it doesn't work so well that you can just walk into any restaurant or do anything you want without your mask and not get COVID. Um, people have gone boosted and have gone COVID. Um, and so the reason is that again, the, the strongest effect of the vaccines and of getting boosted is protecting from severe COVID, from getting so sick that you get hospitalized um, or that you die. That's what the boosters and being up to date on the vaccine does. Now, the booster works so-so for preventing you from catching COVID. 
um, there is data that has come out. Uh, basically, it kind of, especially temporarily, probably for two to three months, reduces your chance of catching and transmitting COVID by well, 30 to 50%. Tends to be less as people get older. Um, also, in one study, tended to be less if they had gotten the previous booster like two, three months before, and it worked a little better if it had been more like four to six months since they got the previous booster. Um, so you can still easily catch COVID if you've been recently boosted, but your risk is less. Um, but the booster works in that it reduces the, um, you know, again, it, if you're older or at high risk, it definitely reduces your risk of severe COVID in a way that's very meaningful. Um, and then, you know, since it reduces your risk somewhat of catching and transmitting COVID, uh, I think it was a good idea for people who are younger and low risk to consider getting, you know, boosted um, a month before the holidays, because that's just like one small thing they're doing to reduce the chance that they could give COVID to an older loved one at the family gathering. So if you are among those who have not gotten the fall booster, especially if you're over age 65, it is not too late to get boosted. So unless you've had COVID in the last three months, I would say go get boosted. Um, now there are two, Moderna or Pfizer. Um, either is okay. Moderna contains more antigen um, in the booster, just as it did in the original vaccine. And so if you have a choice, I lean towards Moderna for older adults because higher antigen doses generally do a better job of stimulating aging immune systems. Um, so, um, so the next question is how often should you get boosted? So this, people are starting to ask this a lot, especially the ones who have, um, you know, been very, uh, open and accepting of vaccines and, um, getting, uh, boosted. Uh, so one frequently asked question is I had my bivalent booster in September of 2022 since protection wanes. Shouldn't I get another? So here's what to know. So first of all, a second, so it's true that at this point, as best we could tell, the, the short term, the effect of the reduction in catching and transmitting COVID usually starts to wane after two, three months. And the effect of protection against severe COVID probably starts to wane at, you know, by six months, right? So it's true that for those people who got boosted back in September or early October, they're approaching the six-month mark. And so it's not unreasonable to be concerned that your protection has declined. Uh, probably it has, especially if you have not previously had COVID in the past year. That said, another bivalent booster has not yet been authorized for anyone. Um, so uh, the, C the FDA and the CDC are currently working on COVID vaccine issues. Um, as we speak, the CDC actually just like Yesterday, today, and tomorrow is having an extensive meeting on um, vaccines. Uh, they are discussing things like, how are we going to formulate the vaccine? Um, like, which variant? What's the process? And they're discussing things like vaccine schedules. So some of you may remember that in the fall, uh, some experts, and I think including the White House coordinator, said that, you know, prop, we might end up with something similar to the way we do the flu shot. That, you know, every fall there's an updated um, COVID shot. Um, that uh, is recommended for everybody, especially for people who who are higher risk. So these are the things that are being worked out right now um, at the FDA and um, 
and at the CDC. And uh, so I will show you really quickly. I will post links to this. If you are the kind of person who geeks out on all the details, um, this is where it is right here. So this is this is the information um, on um, that they presented. Um, so this shows like a lot of good, you know, uh, data on what they're reviewing as they think about the composition of the vaccine. Um, so it's a good recap. So these can be good for people who like to get into details. And then the CDC um, right here, this is uh, where they post the slides um, for their, their meetings. And so as you can see tomorrow, February 24th, they will be doing, you know, the whole thing on COVID vaccines, future directions. And um, so this, this is probably where we're going to get a sense of the direction that they're planning to take. Um, and uh, so I'll definitely post a link to this. I had to record this uh, today. I couldn't wait until tomorrow or next week just because of some other issues uh, with my schedule. But my guess is that later this fall, so uh, later this fall, excuse me, later this spring. Um, so it's possible that later this spring they will announce that it's possible or maybe even recommended for people who are at high risk to get a second, uh, another booster um, possible. Uh, and then my guess is that there will be some kind of, you know, booster or, or update available by the the fall. So we'll see how that um, works out. Now, um, really quickly about masking. I already mentioned this. Um, so you may have heard in the news that there, there was just earlier this week, a flurry of um, op-ed commentary, you know, see, masks don't work. That's because there was recently published a Cochrane uh, review. So the Cochrane Collaborative is a highly respected um, group that does uh, reviews, systematic reviews of uh, existing scientific literature. So here it is right here, published January 30th, physical interventions to interrupt or reduce the spread of respiratory viruses. And they looked at um, masks compared to no masks, um, respirators, which is the technical term for an N95 compared to medical surgical masks and hand hygiene. Um, so they looked at those and let me see. And actually what they, uh, this was interpreted by many people to say, see, masks don't work. Um, but um, Really, what they what they said more is um, having trouble finding the short version of uh, of what they summarize. They they basically said that they could not. Um, that's going to be all the way at the bottom. Well, I'll let you. Um, all right. I, I won't slow down right now, but um, their review does include many limitations and caveats, and it did not definitely invalidate masks. You know, they sort of said that in a way there was still not enough high quality research to um, to ascertain. It. So, however, this has been spun by many people into see masks don't work, and I think that's a misrepresentation of what the Cochrane review um, said, um, because to a certain extent, it's about the physics of airborne transit of airborne transmission and mask mechanics. Um, so if you wear a high quality, well-fitting mask consistently in the appropriate circumstances, it's almost certainly going to reduce your risk. Um, and it's important to not conflate like, did a mask mandate work or did telling people to wear a mask or assigning them to wear a mask 
uh, uh, work? I mean, those are interesting questions too, right? We, we should have a sense of, you know, when we do those things, do we get the effect we want? But that's not the same as answering the question, you know, for you personally, if you're sick, will wearing a mask help reduce the chance that you'll transmit your illness, whether it's COVID flu or what other respiratory illness, will it reduce the chance of you transmitting it to people near you? The, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, and will it reduce the chance of you, you know, catching it? from other people, you know, probably, especially again, if you're wearing it in the situations, you know, that are most likely to be risky for you. Um, so again, if you're going to wear a mask, I recommend wearing, you know, at least the KN95 um, or KF94. Um, and uh, then do you need to mask outdoors? I mean, outdoors is generally pretty low risk because there's so much ventilation. So if you're super high risk, super worried about catching something. If you're going to be in a crowd with lots of people shouting, if you're going to have somebody talking in your face unmasked for a while, you could wear one, but I think it's less necessary there and that it's really uh, indoors when you're with a lot of people for a prolonged period of time that it makes the biggest difference. Okay. So how do you know if you have COVID? Um, so uh, COVID symptoms are highly variable still. So this is what I said back in December. Can be anything from mild cold symptoms to fever, sore throat, feeling crappy, feeling wiped out. Uh, so especially in frail older adults, um, just like with the flu, they may just have fatigue and malaise and not particularly a cough or runny nose. Uh, and it can be almost nothing. So in the case of my son, who is 12, he had a runny nose a few days. And I said, you have a cold? And he's like, no, I feel fine. But I could, you know, see him like sniffling and then it turned into a bit of a cough. And I said, are you feeling sick? No, I feel fine. And I thought, well, let's just check for COVID anyway. And he was positive. Um, so uh, now it turns out that uh, we weren't about to visit um, anybody frail or older. Um, I forget what made me decide to go ahead uh, and check. And he also, you know, he was a little tired the next day and then felt fine and tested negative soon afterwards. He got over it very quickly. But um, again, it can be very easy to miss. So I would be especially careful if the stakes are higher. If you're going to visit your frail older parent in a nursing home, um, if there's, you know, a particular reason to be careful, which usually is either you're high risk or you're going to come into contact with somebody who's high risk. Um, otherwise, you know, it's kind of, um, it's kind of up to you. I mean, my kids go to school and at the school, most people are not wearing masks very much. And I've decided that it's just, not really feasible for me to insist that they were masks at schools. If we lived with a frail grandparent in the home, uh, I might feel differently. Um, you, uh, the rapid tests do work, um, but it can take four to five days before people turn positive on the rapid test. Um, so, you know, if there are cold symptoms, if unless they've been there for four to five days, you know, a negative test could be, you know, not positive yet. And then people will remain positive for a certain number of days. Generally, if it's their second time having COVID or afterwards, it'll be fewer days than the first time. And you should assume that they're contagious until they turn negative um, uh, again. So should you use rapid tests before gathering? Um, you might detect some contagious COVID cases, especially since there will be people who think they just have allergies or a little cold, and in fact, they have COVID. Um, so if you're really concerned about protecting somebody vulnerable from COVID, Again, I would think about, you know, can we open windows? Can we filter the air? Can we meet outside? 
um, that might be more effective than having everybody rapid test before the gathering. So what about treating COVID? Um, so this also is personal <laughs> because then um, my uh, older relative who came down with COVID, who had not gotten a booster in time to get the protection from it, who was in this higher risk group, you know, in uh, his seventies. Um, then there was a question of, you know, could we get him uh, Paxlovid? Um, so when I found out that he was unwell, I said, you have to go get Paxlovid. Um, so I'm sharing partly based on my experience of trying to help my family members get Paxlovid. Um, the take home is the most effective, easy outpatient treatment for COVID is Paxlovid. Uh, I'm not going to go over the data now, but works really well. Um, and so it's especially important for people who are at high risk. So that's, you know, older adults or other people who fall into that high risk category. It works better the sooner you start it. So ideally you start it within five days um, of symptoms um, or, you know, as soon as the, the test is positive. But here's the issue. Um, and this has been documented. Many doctors are getting this wrong. Many providers are inappropriately reluctant to prescribe Paxlovid, and it's a real problem. So let me tell you about the common errors that are being seen. And I have seen this happen with my family members. Uh, this is being reported to me by the families who I coach in my online group coaching programs and the such. Um, so one error that doctors make is that um, the person's symptoms are mild and they think, well, if you're not that sick from COVID, you don't need Paxlovid. This is actually wrong. The recommendation for the decision-making about whether or not to prescribe Paxlovid is supposed to be about how high-risk the person is, not how bad are their symptoms. Because high-risk people can initially have mild symptoms with COVID and then get very sick after seven or eight days. So um, so that's wrong thinking. So Paxlovid should be prescribed based on the underlying risk of severe COVID. And basically, everyone over 65 is considered high-risk enough and should probably get it. Uh, especially if they have not been recently boosted or if they have any chronic health conditions. Um, so next mistake that they make is that um, they worry about the drug interactions. It's true that Paxlovid can interact with a number of drugs, some of which are very commonly prescribed, including statins. Um, so this happened to my other family member, um, you know, a woman in 70 who came down with COVID is I said, um, you know, go ask for Paxlovid. And she went to the doctor and the doctor said, well, no, because you're on a statin. Well, that is wrong. <laughs> you know, actually, um, first of all, it's not all statins that are contraindicated with Paxlovid. And for the ones that are, you can stop the statin, the cholesterol medication um, that day. And you can just not take your cholesterol medication, you know, while you're on Paxlovid. And I forget what it is for a few days afterwards and then resume it that doesn't put people at like crazy high risk for a heart attack or stroke. And it does allow them to take Paxlovid, um, which is important. Um, so, um, and then another sort of myth is that there's too much rebound with Paxlovid. So rebound is the phenomenon where people have COVID, they take Paxlovid, they feel better, they turn negative on their COVID test. And then a few days later, their symptoms come back, they turn positive again on the COVID test and they're positive again for some time. So that is rebound. Um, so it's been studied and it seems to happen in like 10 to 14% of cases. You know, the president had rebound, his wife had rebound after she took Paxlovid, Anthony Fauci had rebound. 
Um, lots of people have had rebound. Uh, many people that I know who took Paxlovid seem to have gotten it. I'm not sure why. Um, however, it's not a reason to withhold Paxlovid. Nobody has been hospitalized from their rebound. And the expert consensus is that that's not a reason to not give it. But that's the reason that many doctors do. So I'm going to share with you a little tool that you can use um, uh, to, um, uh, if you need to. Um, to advocate for Paxlovid. So I found this as I was helping my family members and it is, let's see, right here. So the FDA actually created a handy Paxlovid patient eligibility screening checklist tool. This is designed for health professionals. You can still take a look at it um, because uh, over here, it goes through the medications and says what to do if a person is on a medication. So here we have statins right here. If they are on lovastatin or simvastatin, um, you can give Paxlovid if you can hold the statin for 12 hours prior to the first dose of Paxlovid, and you restart it five days after you complete Paxlovid. And then if they're taking atorvastatin or rosuvastatin, you can consider temporary discontinuation, but you don't need to hold it. So my family member was on atorvastatin, Lipitor. Um, and she was told, you can't be on Paxlovid. Well, that was wrong. <laughs> so so um, it's important to be ready, I think, if you are an older person to advocate and that, uh, you know, I think you could bring it in. And if the provider says you can't use it, you could say, well, can you help me look through this and help me understand why it is? Because I thought from this that I could and uh, just push back a bit. Um, Okay. Um, so are there other ways to treat outpatient COVID? This is about outpatient COVID. If people are in the hospital, it's a whole other ballgame. Um, but um, another effective option is remdesivir, which initially was a treatment used in the hospital. It's been found that you can use it outpatient. The dosing is a little bit different. Um, the catch is that it's an IV medication, so it has to be infused um, over, I'm not sure how long uh, it takes, but it's a little bit like going to get, you know, um, I guess otherwise for outpatient, you know, infusions are often things like uh, cancer drugs. Um, there's an osteoporosis drug that's an infusion. Um, so the person has to get an IV, an IV administration of this medication on three consecutive days. So that's often hard to arrange in the outpatient setting, could be doable in a nursing home, and it should be started within seven days sooner is better. So uh, that's another option that is effective. It's just inconvenient. So the other option that I've seen many people offered, and this was offered to my family member when she was refused Paxlovid, is um, Legevrio, uh, Molnupiravir. So that's the other oral medication. It is not as good. So that's basically the deal. Um, so the data for its effectiveness is much weaker than for Paxlovid. It has not been confirmed to reduce hospitalizations and deaths in vaccinated older adults. There was a big randomized uh, study that um, done in the UK that found that people did feel better sooner when they took the medication, but it didn't reduce hospitalizations and death. And so the NIH guidelines, and I will post a link to this in you know the related resources, they say to use it only when Paxlovid and remdesivir are not available, not feasible to use, or um, you know, are not clinically appropriate. And that's really rare. <laughs> so again, I would say don't let them like fob you off on like molnupiravir unless you really, really can't take Paxlovid. And most people who are being denied Paxlovid actually could take it. So again, the most effective, easy outpatient treatment is Paxlovid. So you know, ask for it, especially if you're older, higher risk, 
and use that eligibility uh, checklist. Otherwise, if you do get sick, uh, if you have COVID, assume you're contagious until you're negative on rapid tests for two days in a row. You can protect others by staying home, by wearing an N95 when you're outside your isolation room. I do think if you have housemates, roommates, it's better for the person with COVID to isolate in a room or a certain part of the house and otherwise see their family outside if that's feasible with the weather. Um, but if they are going to be out and about in the home, um, you know, opening windows or running air filters, and then housemates should also wear masks in um, the common home areas that reduces the chance of getting it. I've had everybody in my house get COVID and I still haven't gotten it because we take these steps when uh, somebody has it. And then if you have to leave home for school or, or work, where the N95, um, I think recommended is 10 days. You know, if again, you've tested negative on rapid tests, you know, two days in a row, you could probably stop. Otherwise, if you have COVID, I recommend resting and taking it easy until you're fully recovered. It can take a few weeks to feel better, listen to the body, and you will be less likely to catch it for the next few months. Um, and again, does it matter if you catch COVID again? The first time seems to probably be the riskiest for most uh, people. But again, subsequent infections do come with some risks, um, you know, for older people and people who have chronic conditions, and we're still figuring out how much risk it is for people who are younger and uh, healthier. So to wrap things up, um, the COVID situation is better, but COVID rates are not yet low and the risk to older adults is not over. And the people getting hospitalized and dying of COVID are overwhelmingly older adults, especially those who did not get their fall bivalent booster or those who are at higher risk due to advanced age, especially once people get into their 80s and over, who have multiple chronic conditions, who are frail. Um, and again, we have over 300 people a day dying of this. Um, so if you are older um, or otherwise at high risk, um, stay up to date on the COVID booster. They do work to prevent severe COVID and hospitalization. They're not a golden shield against ever catching COVID, but they work for what's most important. So get it if you haven't already. When the next one becomes eligible at some point later this year, get that one. And if you happen to get COVID, push for treatment with Paxlovid within the first five days. Uh, remember that you're not supposed to see, am I feeling crappy enough? You know, if you're, if you're at high risk and to make it easy, we'll say if you're over 65, I would say, you know, go with the Paxlovid, especially if you haven't had the recent booster. So bring in that eligibility ch checklist. Um, and otherwise, for everybody, I, I still think it's worth taking some reasonable steps to get COVID less often. Um, so unless you recently had it, or unless the wastewater data and other data show that we've finally gotten to a point where levels are very low, um, you know, consider precautions. So, um, you know, masking on planes, crowded indoor spaces, ventilation, or air filters for cleaner indoor air, and outdoor socializing and activities when possible. So um, last but not least, you know, the COVID public health emergency is ending, and COVID is going to remain a significant public health issue for the foreseeable future. It's going to, um, you know, 300 deaths a day, people are like, it's like the flu. 300 deaths a day over a year is 110,000 deaths in a year. And that is way more than the flu. I mean, a bad flu season is like 40,000 deaths in a year, right? So this is like more than twice as much as the flu. And it's disproportionately affecting older adults, especially those who are frail, who are chronically ill, um, and especially those who are otherwise in a disadvantaged groups who have less access to healthcare, 
and fewer people reminding them to get the booster for, um, you know, uh, people uh, often of color, people of lower income, uh, they also tend to get disproportionately affected by COVID. But it also affects the rest of us. Um, just having a lot of people sick and having to take time off work is a drag on the economy. It's uh, a personal difficulty and can create hardships for uh, for the family. Um, so, you know, I think it's even for those of us who are not older, it's not trivial. So public investment funding is needed so we can develop better vaccines, treatments, so we can maybe do more surveillance and know when COVID rates are going up or we have a new, um, you know, variant um, so that we could work on indoor air quality improvements that benefit everyone. There's lots of ways for this to benefit uh, all of us. So I really think we can live life. People, you know, are like, we need to live our lives you know, let's move on from COVID. I think we can live life while still investing in public health and providing support for our most vulnerable citizens. Um, so I want to encourage you to, you know, when you hear about it, um, support more funding for COVID public health, because it does make a difference to the most vulnerable people. And I think it helps all of us. So thank you for watching this update. Be well, let's take care of ourselves and also of each other. So thank you so much. And um, I'll try to do another one of these uh, later in the year. Thank you, everybody. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes and if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.